Hello, welcome to Thought About Food, a podcast on food and food studies. Each episode, we look at important issues around food, and we talk to academics, activists, policymakers, chefs, or anyone who works on these issues. My name is Ian Werkheiser, and I'm an associate professor at the University of Texas, Rio Grande Valley, and director of the Center for Collaboration and Ethics at UTRGV. Last episode, I spoke to Ann Portman about food sovereignty and gender justice, among other topics. And today's episode is a discussion with an organization that tries to implement the concept of food sovereignty in concrete ways to the problems around them. I talk with Lisa Oliver King and Estelle Slootmaker from Our Kitchen Table, or OKT. Our Kitchen Table is a grassroots, nonprofit organization serving the communities of Greater Grand Rapids, Michigan. OKT seeks to promote social justice and serve as a vehicle that empowers neighbors so that they can improve their health and environment and the health and environment of their children through information, community organizing, and advocacy. I was really excited to talk about OKT, and I think you're going to enjoy the conversation we had. The activities Our Kitchen Table does are amazing, and you'll hear about a few of them in this podcast. And their website is a fantastic resource for how to do those activities yourself in your community, as well as a lot of educational material, some of which we also mentioned in this episode. So do be sure to check them out after listening to this. Let me tell you a little bit about our guests. Lisa Oliver King is the founding executive director of OKT. She was kind enough to come speak at a conference on food justice and contribute to a book I co-edited with Zachary Piso on food justice a few years ago. Estelle Slootmaker has handled Our Kitchen Table's communications functions since 2010. She also assists with presentations and food justice education and represents OKT on the Grand Rapids Environmental Justice Collaborative. As a note, this is the last episode from the crop of episodes I recorded early in the pandemic, so you'll hear a few references to it being the late spring, early summer. Moving forward, the next episodes you're going to hear in future weeks were recorded after the podcast launched. If there's a topic you'd like to hear addressed, or if there's someone you think I ought to talk to, please drop us an email at thoughtaboutfood at gmail.com. And now, here's my conversation with Lisa Oliver King and Estelle Slootmaker from Our Kitchen Table. Thank you for inviting us. Yeah, so I'm trying to make these, these recordings be useful, you know, at any time, make them a little bit timeless so that people can listen to them at any point. But given the situation right now, it seems uh, strange not to ask you how you're holding up during this pandemic. This is Lisa Oliver Kane talking, um, holding up pretty good. Um, all of the family is home. So I have two daughters that are in college. Um, my oldest, who is 21, um, will be a senior at the University of Michigan. And my youngest, who is 18 to be 19 in July, will be, um, is currently at um, Western Michigan University. So, and my husband is home and um, I am blessed to have my mother-in-law that lives with me and my cat, Cassia. We, uh, we're doing pretty good. We're doing pretty good. Thank you for asking. Yeah. Are you, so are you crawling over each other and getting each other's hair? Or are you enjoying this uh, sort of unusual chance to be with older children like that? I am going to say both. Um, <laughs> <laughs> um, my husband, um, Every time he sees something on the Food Network, he's cooking now in the kitchen. So I, um, we were going to be empty nesters this year. And so to have everybody back home, it's, um, it's been interesting. It's been good. It's been interesting. 
And it's been, oh, I'm so glad when the, I will be so glad when this is over and everybody can go back to their corner. So, yeah, yeah, I'm, I'm uh, finishing teaching this semester at University of Texas Rio Grande Valley, but I'm also helping my two kids handle elementary school at home simultaneously, which is, uh, it, it's been, I think, yeah, I think you're right. Interesting is the right word. Yeah. So how old are your children? Uh, my older uh, son is seven years old and my younger son is five. So they're in second oh. grade and pre-K respectively. And so are you doing the online learning? Yeah. I mean, even online isn't exactly the right term because online classes are designed to be online classes. These are sort of emergency remote uh, instruction. Okay. So the teacher's you know, they're doing their best putting up material um, online for them to find. And we're taking photos of the work and turning it in. Um, you know, they have some video conferencing meetings to see their friends, but it's, uh, it's definitely a very different experience for them and a little bit disjointed, but they're holding it pretty well. I ask that because um, um, our kitchen table has received um, um, what is it? COVID-19 response funds from United Way, um, now the city of Grand Rapids, and um, we've been contacted by Why Hunger to apply for a grant under the same umbrella. Um, the primary families that we're working with are um, from the connection is that they're all families, um, school-based families from um, a local Grand Rapids-based school here. And so I'm thinking, I want to make the argument that even though we've been given that we, even though we've been directed that we can use uh, the funds in five areas, food assistance, shelter, um, personal care, cleaning products, and transportation. Um, I'm, I'm trying to make, uh, I'm trying to figure out how to make the argument that um, if we are able to also provide tutoring services, um, to those families around subject matters that they're trying to navigate through. Um, we, we see that as an immediate need, um, particularly I couldn't imagine teaching young teaching period. So uh, I've always had respect for teachers, but even more now in terms of what they do. And uh, families are really struggling and they need help with, um, you know, every parent that we're working with is trying to be our caregiver that we're working with is trying to be the best that they can be in uh, this type of situation. So I'm, I'm going to shoot for it. I'm going to say part of personal care. Um, so you're not stressed out is uh, allowing us to also be able to um, provide tutoring services through um, um, Zoom. So um, that's why I was being nosy. So I'm sorry I didn't mean <laughs> no. to distract. I'm sorry. I, I, no, I think that, that. No, no, I think that's fantastic. I mean. One of the real dangers with putting children uh, into this kind of environment, and obviously this wasn't planned, this was an emergency response, is that there's going to be very wide, I would imagine, disparities in outcome. You know, like my children, I, you know, I'm uh, a university professor. My wife uh, has a degree in early childhood education and works at the children's desk of the public library down here in Texas. So, you know, we have a lot of resources to help our kids. and I can't think that that's the standard across uh, all of the families. And so when you remove kids from having the same teacher and throw them on parents, some of whom might be uh, essential workers and are busy working right now, some of whom you know might not have all of the resources at home that you would have in a classroom to help them, 
uh, it can be really difficult. I mean, I, you know, I've talked to friends of mine who are having trouble helping their third and fourth graders with math, <laughs> suddenly yep. realizing that they don't I remember how this works. I so, can imagine that. Yeah. yeah. So having those kinds of resources, I think, could be really important. But let's back up a little bit and talk about OKT. Can you talk about the history of um, Our Kitchen Table, how it came to be? And also, because our listeners are all over the place, maybe a little bit of background about Grand Rapids and the problems that uh, you face there. Um, if you don't mind, I'm going to let Stale take that question since uh, she's our communication coordinator and she is always writing uh, um, about our kitchen table historically and uh, our role here in Grand Rapids and in Michigan. So I'm going to let her take that question. And um, when she's done, if there's anything to add to it, which probably it will not be because she is <laughs> so terrific at the job she does um, um, at the passion. She's, it's more for all of us. It's much more than a job for us. So if you don't mind, I'm going to let um, Stale take that and then um, chime in if I have anything else to add. That's great. Okay. Uh, you've been to the website and saw that Lisa actually started our kitchen table in 2003 uh, as a call to action. I believe, you know, initially uh, some of the focuses were uh, lead poisoning in Grand Rapids Southeast neighborhoods, uh, where it is a real hot spot, uh, probably about the same amount of lead poisoning as is going on in Flint. Uh, not, you know, quite a problem. And I believe that was, that was the first project uh, that our kitchen table worked on. When I joined in 2010, uh, we had received funding from the W.K. Kellogg Foundation for our food diversity project. And that's kind of what launched the work that we're doing today. Uh, we started out doing uh, gardens at people's residence, uh, food gardens at a couple schools, a couple community gardens, in neighborhood uh, with the grand goal of creating an alternative to the industrial food system. And of course, we know we haven't quite gotten there yet, <laughs> but uh, there are a, a lot of folks in the neighborhoods now growing their own healthy food. Uh, these neighborhoods are impacted what we call food apartheid. That is, they do not have the same selections of nutrient-rich foods as you might find in more affluent neighborhoods. Uh, we see this by design as it is far more profitable for uh, the food industry to push uh, junk food, fast food, convenience foods through corner stores and gas station stores, uh, places where income-challenged people are spending their food assistance dollars. They are not given a lot of healthy choices in their neighborhoods. So that was one challenge that we were addressing. Uh, move up to today, uh, that program has morphed into our program for growth at the Martin Luther King Leadership Academy, which I think is our best work to date. Uh, Lisa's done an amazing job of, of you know, taking all the work we've done these, these, this past decade and, you know, I think we finally have that program that really works and could be replicated well anywhere. And I'm also really amazed how uh, she has transformed it into a virtual program and people are still planting their gardens this spring and learning about healthy eating and um, how to be advocates for a, a more just food system, all within safe social distancing guidelines. So I'm really proud of Lisa and of, of that work this spring. 
The other, our other focuses would be our walkable farmers market in neighborhood, the Southeast area farmers market, where uh, about 90% of our vendors are women of color growing food in neighborhood. And I believe, Lisa, correct me if I'm not, not quite right, about 90% of sales are, are made with food assistance dollars. Uh, and then we also do some events, uh, cook, eat, and talk, where uh, neighbors get together and, and learn to create a healthy recipe and cook it there and, and have a taste and learn a little bit about food justice. And then we try to impact policy you know, in, 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 in a wee bit, because there's, you know, there's not a lot of us <laughs> working here. Uh, but we do have our Food Policy for Food Justice series, which is online on our resource page, as well as uh, I believe it's 52 page guide for replication that kind of documents all our programming and shares how to do it from growing food and composting to uh, recipes and how to eat to prevent lead poisoning, all kinds of cool tidbits. Yeah, that's fantastic. And just to um, make a, an explicit uh, sort of connection, so you talked about food apartheid um, as this idea of separation of food, um, food access and food availability in certain neighborhoods. Um, so the contrasting case, right, the, the term people usually use for that is a food desert. So can you explain why you don't like that phrase or why you guys don't use that phrase? Well, a desert and, and I'm stealing this from Lisa, a desert is a natural ecosystem in balance where there's food, you know, for the creatures that live there. Uh, and a desert is something that occurs, you know, naturally in nature. Whereas neighborhoods that do not have access to fresh foods, it's not natural. It's, it's uh, intentional. It's profitable. And it's based in structural racism most of the time. Uh, so it's, you know, instead of saying, well, this is just a place that needs a grocery store, we need to look at the broader perspective and see, no, this is a place where uh, through a lens of racism, people are being exploited and, and offered foods that are making them sick. Not saying that there's no accountability and choices that people make with their food, but it just makes it a lot more difficult, you know, if you're living paycheck to paycheck or, or even worse than that, or working in two jobs, like a, a lot of people are in our income challenged neighborhoods and you're raising your kids and you're getting them to school and you're working and got all these problems. And then, you know, you can't just go somewhere nearby and get healthy food. It's much easier to pick up the junk food that's right there in front of you. Uh, plus the marketing messages that, make us all believe that it's so easy and quick to eat that kind of food when in reality it, it isn't. Yeah, absolutely. So those are the, yeah, yeah, I think both of those are really good points. So there's the issue of deserts are <laughs> functional and beautiful, <laughs> nice things are lovely to go visit. And that's not the case here, but also, you know, crucially deserts aren't anyone's fault. You know, even if you talk about desertification, that's sort of, you know, that's an issue of climate and it's all very complicated and really it's no one's fault. Even if we want to make the desert bloom, right? It's, it's us doing something actively nice. No one's responsible. Whereas, you know, poor neighborhoods not having access to healthy food, as you're pointing out, certain people benefit from it. And historically, certain people did things to create that situation. So I think that's a very good uh, distinction to be made. So 
let's and talk. Ian, yeah, please. Um, I wanted to add to that. Um, thank you, Stel. Stel always does a fantastic job. Um, one of the exercises that we do um, with families for um, them to discover pros and cons about their neighborhood in the past and currently is we have them to do an exercise called um, diagramming your neighborhood, where we have them to look back 25, 30 years in terms of what the neighborhood used to be and track what changed the neighborhood to present time. And so folks are able to discover that there were um, um, neighborhood um, small grocery stores um, that um, sold to families and they're able to, they're able to see, um, how can I put it, the, um, the moving out of businesses and um, what moved in and uh, how gas stations became the primary gro grocery store. They're able to do that kind of discovery and realize for themselves who really should be held accountable for the changes that their neighborhoods have gone through and the importance of community voice. That's fascinating. So when you do that activity, are you asking people who are old enough to remember to think back, or are you also trying that activity with young people? And if so, how do you have them find out what the neighborhood was like 30 years ago? Well, we try to do it from an intergenerational per perspective where, um, ages are working together to do that type of historical review. And so we start that off with all of us going to the public library, um, when particularly when libraries used to be open, right? Um, <laughs> I remember that. <laughs> um, so they have this um, fantastic um, space where you can research any address or any neighborhood. And so we start there with people researching their address in their neighborhood and how their neighborhood came to be and how it was named and what was it named for. And we're able to talk about environmental factors. Um, we're able to talk about um, government influence on the local, state, and um, national level, just a whole host of things. But together, they're able to just begin to look at their neighborhood, their house, and what it was 20 years ago. And um, for example, people have discovered their garage where the garages are um, used to be a mushroom farm. And it's, you know, the, it starts with discovery. And what we've learned is through discovery, um, people want to learn more and they're um, open to expanding beyond just their house. Okay, so what was my neighborhood? And then five blocks out, what did that look like? And uh, it's, it's really been a discovery, eye-opening, um, rewarding and yet challenging um, experience when people see that, wow, this was once here and this is how full the neighborhood was. And this is what we had available to us within walking distance. And this is how neighbors worked with each other too. Now we may have more liquor stores or bodegas or this and that, that um, and why did that change? And so we're able to deal with white flight and um, what was left and um, how public policy has worked um, against our interests and in our interests and uh, who those people were and look at how they voted and uh, um, neighborhood startup activities. Um, what was the strength of the Neighborhood Association to its weakness now? 
what was the role of Black grants to its non-existence or weakness now? So it's, we found it to be um, a really good um, exercise. And um, I sent you uh, an attachment of our Guide to Replication that um, Stale did for us, um, as well as a um, public policy piece that Stale just wrote up for us respond to some questions that we received from a neighboring city called Holland. So um, yeah, yeah, diagramming, um, diagramming your neighborhood. Um, it speaks to ownership, it speaks to past and present um, action, it speaks to voice, it speaks to community action and what we can do now, particularly when we look at the food system. That's great, yeah, it's the kind of activity that you could do at a very large scale uh, or even just with your own family, depending on what sorts of resources you have access to, I'll definitely make those documents available for our listeners. And you then know, I wanted to add, when Stale was given the history up to now, uh, um, as I said, uh, I don't pay Stale enough. She is just a jewel. She, um, we've been, we have a long marriage, so to speak. <laughs> <laughs> but um, we've also been fortunate enough to add a registered dietitian to um, work with um, our families around um, nutrition education. Not only does she do nutrition education, her name is Tracy Booth. She um, runs, her company is Lifestyle Nutritional Services. She not only does um, nutrition education, um, she um, also has created a grocery store tour approach that we've done, um, as well as um, cooking demos. Um, we do a chop series sometimes, like the Food Network, mm -hmm. um, as we learn about food. And she's done a really good job with tying in our um, food growing with our um, meal planning preparation piece um, in terms of understanding RDA, uh, recommended daily allowance, and just the taste of um, um, good food with those uh, essential items that we need to be healthy and happy. Sure. So what do you mean by uh, a grocery store tour? That sounded really interesting. So, it, it, uh, you know, it's just, it's an amazing experience in that we do this and, you know, you, you, how can it, when I look at, when I think of education, I think of it as being pretty regimented and you just, you're taking in information. Um, and information is going one way, which is probably the wrong way to look at it. Because when we've done our grocery store tours, we've um, taken families. Um, so Tracy puts together a packet of information for us to review. And then we have to apply that information that we've learned in our nutrition education sessions to shopping in the grocery store. So not only is it reading food labels and understanding ingredients, it's also understanding the design of the grocery store. Um, we know that in urban communities, um, there's intentionality. Well, it, and I'm sure I shouldn't say just urban communities. There is intentionality where items are placed in a grocery store, depending on the neighborhood that you're in. And so we have found that in urban settings, those that are not necessarily in our best interest, which tends to sell more or place immediately for families to see, versus when we go to our more affluent areas, it's not there. 
the reality is whether it's affluent or um, a marginalized neighborhood, um, most folks are um, are like deer in headlights when they go shopping, but yet there is uh, in your more affluent neighborhoods um, accessibility to um, better quality foods are much made much more made available. So, for example. Um, we had a nurse who was a part of our programming and she liked Pepsi and she would buy the, what is it? Four ounce cans, um, the smaller mini cans um, on her way um, leaving her job. And she realized that she couldn't find anything smaller than a 24 ounce Pepsi in the urban neighborhood that she, that she lived in. That's, that's intentional. And uh, and yet it was also mind blowing, and um, that when you really begin to do that kind of homework and really understand what is my neighborhood food system, um, it there is a, a real contrast to other neighborhood food systems, and then you begin to explore the root causes of why. That's fascinating. I mean, and that really shows the difference between like a food justice approach and just, you know, sort of a food mindfulness or food awareness, because there's, you know, lots of people will talk you through grocery stores, you know, your own grocery store that's near your house and say, um, you know, you need to think about how there's healthier food, you know, as they say, around the edge of the grocery store, you know, like the, the fresh produce is along the side, the processed foods are in the middle, you know, and people, or even, you know, how are impulse items near checkout stands, those sorts of things. But it's very focused on just your own grocery store, how to shop your grocery store better. Um, but to instead take a justice framework and look at the differences, even, I mean, to be clear, grocery stores that are, have the same name on the outside, right? Grocery stores from the same grocery company uh, will look radically different in different neighborhoods. Uh, that's very striking where I live. Um, down here, uh, the, the HEB is, is the local grocery store in Texas. And the HEB that's in predominantly Spanish-speaking, poorer neighborhoods, and predominantly English-speaking, wealthier neighborhoods are like night and day from each other. And thinking through those differences and disparities and why that would happen, uh, you know, can be a really good beginning to a conversation. That's fantastic. And speaking of which, let's maybe go back a little bit. How would you describe or how would you characterize food justice as a concept? Because I think that might be a new term for some people listening. Um, I, if you don't mind, I'm going to, because um, Dale does a great job with this. Can we let her start off? Yeah, please. Uh, well, what is food justice? Well, food justice is looking at uh, not only everyone having equitable access to healthy food, but it also looks at how the food is produced, uh, how is it impacting the natural environment, uh, are the animals used in food production treated mainly? Are the workers in the fields or in the processing plants or restaurants, uh, are they being exploited or are they being paid fairly and, and have good conditions to work in? Food justice looks at the impacts of transporting food long distances and how that impacts the both local economies negatively and also greenhouse gas emissions with you know a tomato coming 2,000 miles across the country when they could be growing you know, in the farm five miles away. Food justice also looks at the role of racism throughout history, how people of color 
have, are the ones who have been exploited. Uh, our country's own history, you know, it, with with slavery and the people from Africa come, you know, they were forced to grow our food for us and not reap the benefits. Uh, today, it's we're exploiting migrant workers, which uh, mostly come from well, more like your neck of the woods. Uh, Michigan has a huge uh, migrant worker population of folks from Mexico and Latin America and how they are exploited. So food justice also looks at, at that contemporary issue of the whole uh, immigration things that are going on nowadays. Yeah, there's actually um, sort of a triangle of trade that happens. Um, I was surprised when I moved down here from Michigan after getting my PhD up there that uh, many, many, many people that I ran into when I told them I moved down here from Michigan, they'd say, oh, yeah, I used to go up to Michigan all the time when I was a kid. And that surprised me. But the reason why is because there's this sort of triangle of migrant labor that happens between South Texas, Michigan, and then something on the West, depending, right, where they go, maybe Washington State or California, so that they could follow growing seasons or picking seasons uh, in order to remain at work. And that was much more common a couple decades ago, which is why lots of people say that they went up to Michigan when they were kids. And I did forget one point that rather major. Uh, food justice is also about women's rights, um, particularly women of color, uh, because throughout history it is, is, it is women and women of color who are uh, most involved in the production and the cooking and the serving of food and also among the most exploited. And I believe that still kind of remains the, the same today, uh, especially in, in other countries around the world. Sure, of course. Yeah, in terms of um, uh, food production, food production is still majoritarian uh, female in worldwide, particularly for subsistence farmers. And even in the United States, I think if you think of all the stages of contact with food from growing it to distributing it to selling it to preparing it, maybe not consuming it, that's pretty gender neutral. <laughs> but every other stage seems to affect women more than men uh, quite frequently. So um, let me ask you a question. I mean, I, I work on food justice. I think it's very important. But a question that I get sometimes to throw to you guys is uh, why food? Like, if you're interested in justice or if you're interested in, you know, racial justice or justice along class lines or intersectional justice, bringing all of these things together with gender and disability and everything else, uh, why, what does food have to do with any of this? Is, is this just like, you could as easily say clothing justice because rich people have nicer clothes. Or is there something special about food that um, you know makes it worth focusing on? Well, the beauty of food is that it's a common it's a common language, and um, our kitchen table um, the title was created because at the table or at a table there's so many dynamics that um, bring people together where whether it's sharing a glass of wine or um, eating a peanut butter sandwich or eating a fancy meal or having uh, uh, going down memory lane and looking at pictures and laughing about when or having a blowout, an argument that you um, need to, to get through. And what we found that has allowed us to be central is this conversation about food. So whether you're um, 
dealing with marginalized situations or um, coming from an affluent background, there's something about talking about how do we make guacamole that tends to um, allow that conversation to happen or uh, talking about coffees or teas and, and the rituals behind that or making um, corn tortillas or uh, greens together or the memories we have about the holidays where we stay up and we cook together and we're teaching our children how to bake cakes from scratch or make butter or make personal care items out of sage, uh, food tends to allow us to break through barriers and um, be able to have a conversation where it's not, it's with each other and not you telling me what to do or you're in charge of this or, you know, hierarchy, I guess I'm talking about. Um, food allows us to be able to have common ground that we can stand on and we can learn from and we can listen to. And, and it's, it's um, humanitarian. It's, it is um, comforting. It, is, it touches our soul um, in a way that um, most folks can relate to that and identify in some way, and we're able to find common ground where we are able to start somewhere with um, walking along a journey and figuring out where it's going to take us. Yeah, that's great. I mean, even when you have, uh, you know, the, the phrase that sometimes people use in academics is uh, a boundary object. You know, even if you have two people from very different worlds, uh, the, a thing they can talk about is food, right? Because Every, everybody eats if nothing else. Yes. Yeah. So um, another term that uh, I see you guys discuss on your website, which I think is a very important term that not everyone maybe has a handle on, is this idea of food sovereignty. So you're helping people grow their own food, um, you know, some sort of local uh, neighborhood-based food practices through OKT. Could you talk a little bit about um, what food sovereignty means to you? I'm going to, again, refer to Stale. She maintains our um, website and, um, again, does an excellent job of explaining this. So, Stale, can you please take this question also? I will try. <laughs> um, food sovereignty basically is having control over your own food, you know, from growing it to preparing it, producing it, up the whole thing, and, and cho cho choosing the foods that you want to choose for your body foods that are culturally appropriate uh, to your background. So it's, it's a big thing. And we're nowhere near, you know, becoming food sovereign here in Grand Rapids, Michigan. However, we're, we've taken some tiny steps, like you said, uh, when we can grow our own foods, uh, we choose the foods we like. When, when we have our plants grown for the people we work with, uh, we ask them, well, what, what do you want to eat? What kind of plants would you like? Uh, what, what are the things you enjoy eating? And then we will grow our plants according to that. And that gives them control over the foods that they're putting into their body. Uh, ultimately, to be food sovereign is a, a wonderful goal to work towards because 
well, when you look at what's going on with, with COVID-19 right now, uh, for me personally, I've had to rely on my local sources of food, uh, who, who, the, the small places that will deliver curbside and so forth, and, and my far, the farm that I have a CSA share in, uh, those kinds of places uh, that are local, they're more reliable. And uh, the idea of the environmental impacts of food production as we get closer to food sovereignty and controlling our own foods regionally, locally that we're eating, that's going to have a great impact on the environment as well as we're not shipping things far places. And, and also um, another aspect of food sovereignty, but let's talk about quinoa. Quinoa has become very popular, especially with foodies uh, up here in these, these parts. Uh, quinoa was a, a staple food um, in Peru and, and different, you know, South American com countries. But now that it's so popular, uh, it's all being exported for us to eat up here. And meanwhile, the people growing it don't have access to that food anymore. They're no longer food sovereign because those foods are being exported away from them. That's another aspect of food sovereignty that we, we need to look at. Yeah, that's an, an important part of that is uh, democratic control, which is a term that you can miss with food justice, you know, because you can imagine, well, if everyone's being given the same things, then I guess that's fair. And I guess fairness is the same thing as justice. But food sovereignty sort of highlights that idea of letting, you know, in your example, letting indigenous and subsistence farmers in South America be able to have some say, some control over, um, you know, their food systems. So how are you adapting some of these programs and plans that you guys do uh, in the wake of the coronavirus. I know that you were saying that you've gotten some grants, which is great to do some new programs, but in terms of like a farmer's market, um, you know, CSAs, uh, educational experiences, how you're adapting that, uh, like our local farmer's market, um, they have moved to a, to a virtual farmer's market uh, online through this uh, website called the openfoodnetwork.net, which lets um, small uh you know, direct to direct from farmer to consumer markets uh, list their products online. Um, but so what sort of uh, steps are you guys taking to deal with this situation? Well, it's been um, um, pretty interesting. Uh, so um, we, like many others, have joined Zoom so that we're able to um, continue our meetings and our educational piece. Um, as Dale mentioned, uh, a couple of weeks ago, we always start the week of Earth Day. Um, we were able to um, distribute our plants to our family. Um, what was different about that is that we distribute our plants and, and um, we provided um, virtually education around how to plant your garden. So normally, uh, which still is in place. Um, every family is assigned what we call a food garden coach. Just think of visiting nurses. Um, we have someone who has been growing food for at least 12 years or, or longer, um, who is comfortable with being a peer educator. And they would go out and deliver. And we also have a farm consultant that kind of um, has created a curriculum that our peer educators, uh, which are called food garden coaches. We also have cooking coaches, but our food garden coaches are trained um, around key aspects around growing home-based gardens. Um, our first year um, 
growers receive a container garden, which is made up of five gallon buckets and window boxes. Our second year growers, um, if they want, they can receive a raised bed, a four by eight raised bed to um, expand um, their growing experience. Um, different in that, um, again, the food garden, they're assigned a food garden coach, the food garden coach delivers the food. Together, they would um, plant their garden, come up with a blueprint of how they want to lay things out and why, and uh, we would have the opportunity face-to-face um, -to, -face to talk not only about planting and, and maintenance, um, watering um, activities, um, harvesting, um, our kitchen table um, provides uh, um, fertilizer if we have issues around. All of that would happen face-to-face -face as that relationship is being built between um, the primary grower and the family along with the um, food garden coach. Uh, we have to do things virtually now. And so um, I'm figuring out how do we do that, handling that over the phone or handling that through uh, um, the computer. Um, we are, uh, it, it is a challenge to um, building the closeness that we've always been able to build um, with the primary grower and the family. Um, but so far it hasn't interfered to the point that um, we don't see that relationship happening. So our growing program, which is called our Food Diversity Project, has kicked off. We provided our first round of plants to celebrate Earth Day and the beginning of growing. Um, our second round of plants will uh, always come out after Mother's Day. Hopefully the frost will be gone. I don't know. We're supposed to get frost and possibly snow this week. <laughs> it's 90 degrees right now where I am. Oh, so don't rub it in. <laughs> don't rub it in. Oh, I, I would think Stella and I are like, we're just glad to have sun, even though it was almost 70 degrees yesterday and now it's low 60s and it's, a, it, it's getting lower each day. But um, our second round of plants will um, come out in May. Then we do a planting in August and then a planting in October. Hopefully by August, we're, we're not uh, confined to um, the same kind of conditions. But our families that we've worked with have been great. The new families that have come on, um, um, and these are primarily school-based families, we are starting a new program in that not only will we be working with our school-based families, but um, we have managed care organizations and those families who are, are primarily on Medicaid, um, mothers who are pregnant, nursing, and are have low birth weight babies will be joining our program. And so we will be doing, um, growing uh, our garden as well as um, the second strategy we use called Cook, Eat, and Talk. It's primarily a meal planning, meal preparation and meal planning program with doing uh, cooking demonstrations. Um, that is the program that our, um, our farm consultant helps with our food diversity project. Our registered dietitian helps with our cook, eat, and talk. Um, this year will be new because we're being, bringing on a dental hygienist um, at the request of the uh, families that we are currently working with. And um, the hygienist and the registered dietitian are working close with our farm consultants so that um, everything is matching up. For example, um, we have our families to grow mint 
because um, not only can you make mint tea with it and it's great for mojitos, <laughs> um, but also mint is uh, can be used from a high uh, oral hygiene um, perspective. That if you just chew mint, um, you are addressing issues of not only bad breath but um, also uh, good oral health care, um, which our hygienists will um, be able to talk about. Same way when you eat an apple, if you leave the flush between your teeth for a little bit, it's acting like a floss. And so uh, this this should be interesting. And um, so far, we've been able to continue our food diversity project and our cook, eat, and talk through um, um, purchasing services from from Zoom, and our um, as well as it looks like we're going to be able to do cooking demos through Facebook um, Live, and um, so we're we're really learning about online and social media, and um, being able to continue um, the um, services or um, activities that we do. Our farmers market does not open up until July. It's a very small base farmers market between seven to fourteen vendors. Um, what we're talking to vendors about now um, is the approach of um, having um, orders, um, having folks to pre-order and possibly deliver. Um, we are in the midst of figuring out how we can also provide an online um, option as well. And uh, we are hoping by July, though, that we are able to actually set up our farm spaces, our vendors, and um, be able to allow people to um, come and purchase food directly from um, the food growers that are providing that at our farmer's market um, with using um, safe practices. That's great. So if, I mean, you're working on so many fantastic projects. If people want to connect with you and help, what's the best way that they can do that, particularly if they aren't already in Michigan? Oh, okay. Uh, we can go to our website, oktjustice.org, or you could drop me an email, media at oktjustice.org. And we're also on Facebook, of course, uh, Our Kitchen Table and Southeast Area Farmers Market. That's and we're great. on Twitter, too. <laughs> That's great. Well, since, since I have you, Estelle, and I know you need to get off soon, let me quickly ask you about the recipe that you submitted. Uh, so I like to ask um, people on this program to submit a recipe because there's such a power, I think, to sharing food between other people in terms not only of education, but just feeling a connection. And we can't do that virtually, but the, the next best thing is to share some recipes. So I know you shared one, and then also, Lisa, you sent along a link. So Estelle, could, could you maybe talk about yours? Yeah, I sent you a recipe that we just love to make. It's a West African pea soup. I first tasted this soup when um, my daughter worked at the People's Food Co-op in Ann Arbor, Michigan. Uh, they have a not only the co-op with the bulk foods and the healthy foods, but also a little cafe, and their chef cooks things from scratch. And uh, one day in the little e-newsletter, they sent the recipe out. So I started making that and it turned out so great. And then I started trying making other soups and now I'm kind of a soup master. I'm kind of proud of myself. I've never been a great cook, uh, but my husband and I just love making pots of good soup, you know, from 
vegetables and the vegetable broth that I make from our CSA uh, produce. And you, know, you make a big pot of soup in the crock pot and it lasts two or three days. You don't have to cook dinners. <laughs> uh, yeah, it's just been a, a great addition to our diets. That's so I'm thankful for that little recipe. Yeah, that's fantastic. I have I do not have the ability to make anything less than a giant pot of soup. Even if I'm trying to just make a small amount for myself, it always ends up being this massive amount that lasts for days. But uh, when you have a big family, that can be a good thing. And Lisa, uh, the link that you sent along um, is to garlicky mustard greens, which look absolutely delicious, by mm -hmm. Bryant Terry. Um, in fact, somebody that I would love to get on this show. Can you talk a little bit about that recipe and why you like it? Um, well, um, I like it because actually of, um, Brian, he, it, you know, I, it sounds weird. Not only does it taste good, I love the color. I love the smell. Um, it's always been a, um, great conversation piece. Um, I love having it, um, um, with, um, drinks with my friends. I know that probably sounds weird, but. Me personally, I am not a very good cook and for me to be able to master this and for it and to make it taste good is a miracle within itself. <laughs> and so um, um, learning that from Brian and the love and the passion that he puts into preparation, um, I've been able to experience that and I've been able to share that and have and um, experience the same um, how can I experience the same joy um, that I experienced with Brian with uh, friends and family that I've shared that with? That's fabulous. Yeah, I think if you can learn a, re a recipe from somebody, one nice thing is, you know, you, they're sort of in your mind every time you make it, which can be a really great way to reconnect and remember people. Yes, and the color, the, the color is just so beautiful. I know that sounds weird, but um, when he talks about your greens and your yellow purples and your oranges and, you know, when you bring that together and, and this dish, um, the color is just so beautiful and the smell and the taste. And again, thinking of the conversation and thinking of the smiles and, and uh, just good memories around that. And if, if I can do it, anybody can do it. Probably my <laughs> pet Cassia could do it better than me, but. Um, I always joke, I tell people that when I say I'm going to cook something in my household, they go, why? So, <laughs> <laughs> so uh, yeah, this, this has a, a fond memory for me. That's great. And yeah, I think the best way for people who are uh, a little nervous about cooking is to find a couple of recipes you really love and get very good at those. And then, you know, you can expand that afterwards, but even still just having a couple of go-tos, then you can uh, have something to bring to parties or to do with other people. Well, thank you. I, I just want to thank you guys so much for participating. I really appreciate this. I think it's so important um, when thinking about uh, food, as we're doing here on this podcast, to make sure that it stays grounded in issues of justice and the way that it actually affects communities and neighborhoods um, all around the country. And, you know, you guys were so gracious enough to speak um, at the conference that we did at Michigan State a few years ago, and then to contribute to that book that um, I really wanted to get you, your voices out here. Thank you. I appreciate that. And, you know, this may sound really weird to say, but um, in a sense, culverts has actually worked in our favor in terms of um, the education and activities um, that we've done. You know, for example, 
when we look at what's happening in our meat packing companies. Um, meat is usually considered at the top of the food chain, right? You don't have a meal unless you have meat with it. And um, we can only imagine what, uh, what available, availability, uh, availability around meat is going to be like, as well as um, what the cost, not only financially, but the cost of those people working in that plant trying to provide us with um, that um, particular entity has really raised um, thinking around that in terms of do we really need to have meat, particularly when there's a possibility around life loss. Hopefully I've said that in the right and respectful way. Do we really need to have that? And um, hey, maybe it's time for us to consider, particularly when we start thinking about the availability and what the cost may be, Link to meat. Um, maybe it's better for us to start thinking that um, we don't necessarily need to have as much meat a part of our meal as um, being able to to grow our own. So, COVID nineteen really has um, has allowed um, how can I put it even further deep thought thinking around. Um, the value of food, what do we want our food system to look like, and how do we want to be contributors to that system? Because it's important for all of us that all of us have um, healthy and nutritious food, and um, um, how, can, how can we make that happen? And thinking that um, what are we hearing? Food is going to run out, which a lot of that is processed. Um, not necessarily good for us, what are we going to be left with? And I'm sure that's probably going to be about growing our own, respecting our farmers, getting back to the earth, understanding environmental impact. I mean, we've even seen the pictures, and I will be quiet for this, we've even seen the pictures that because we're standing still for the most part, um, our earth is coming back to being what uh, she is supposed to be. What did they say? Is it Venice? They said now you can actually, the water is actually clear. Uh, now that we don't have um, all of those um, boats running along, along it. I just want to say that COVID is, um, our public health crisis is making us stand still and figure out about health and being healthy and understanding the importance of the public sector and uh, um, how we contribute or don't contribute to that. Um, it's making us think about the environment. It's making us think about food. It's making us think about a lot of things that we probably, uh, hopefully, will do differently in the name of being, uh, um, we are our brother and sister's keeper and uh, doing the greater good for all. So that's it. Thank you. Yeah, that's fantastic. Well, and you know, it's true. I, our food system is so invisible to us most of the time. It takes some kind of shock for us to notice the whole system. Even, you know, that shock itself can be very bad. You know, I always say it's like, uh, you know, when you injure a muscle in your back, you realize how often you use your back to do things. Oh, I yeah. didn't know. I, I use that muscle to sneeze. Who knew? Right. So yeah. it's, it's, yeah. Only, it's only when something goes wrong that you see how interconnected we all are with each other through that food system. That's it. How interconnected we are. 
to to everything so yes well thank you so much i really appreciate this um i think i just i just have to i just have to thank thank you this is okt is so great uh for those of you who are listening i strongly suggest you go to their website which i'll provide for you and take a look at the materials they have there um, one last thing Please. you had asked how can people help yeah. another way if people have videos that they want to share in terms of um if they're showing how to do a particular recipe or how to use a particular knife or um something that they've learned about herbs or teas please share those with us because we would like to share with our families oh that's fantastic i'm sure people are going to be interested in that mm -hmm. we'll do that for sure I, I i think that uh my wife may have some that she's been doing with the children uh, at the public library down here that would be great right all right well thank you so much Thank you. Have a good day. You too. Bye. Bye-bye. That was my conversation with Lisa Oliver King and Estelle Slootmaker from Our Kitchen Table. There are some links in the show notes, including one to their website, which has, again, a lot of really fantastic resources for anyone interested in doing activism around food. Um, their chapter on Our Kitchen Table in the book on food justice I edited with Zachary Piso, as well as a couple delicious recipes that you heard discussed. If you'd like to subscribe and leave us a review wherever you find your podcasts, I'd appreciate it. It helps people find the show. You can also follow us on Twitter, at FoodThoughtPod. And if you have a topic you'd like to hear discussed, drop us a line at thoughtaboutfood at gmail.com. Until next time, thanks for listening to Thought About Food. I hope you enjoyed thinking about food with us today. 